You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Acts chapter 5, don't mind, be in verse 17 and following today. As you're finding your place, I just want to remind you of a couple things. Um, In the hallway back there, past those double doors, I don't think there's any over here, but I'm pretty sure there's some back there. There's a prayer list back there with quite a few names on it. Um, And in your quiet time during the week, if you'd like to take those names and pray over them, that would be awesome, be wonderful. If you have a prayer request, inside your bulletin and through your uh, electronic version, you can send a prayer request um, either through written form. You can drop it in the box or give it to me. And the bottom of that form, if it's a, if it's a prayer request that you just want me to know and doesn't go any further because we do have a prayer team that we pass those prayer requests to. But if you only want me to see it, then I'm the only one that will see it, and I'll be praying for you, and then I'll follow up with you. Um, we... Uh, we take prayer seriously. We believe that God answers prayer. So we want to be a, a people that lift up prayer. We want to be a house of prayer. And uh, any way we can help you with that, either by praying with you over something or inviting you to pray with us, that would be, that would be awesome. Acts chapter 5. So I had, um, I had a birthday uh, last week, and uh, my family did something special for me. They, they took me to uh, Snowshoe, West Virginia to go skiing. Uh, I have I have never been known for my athletic ability in any chosen sport, uh, whether it be basketball, horrible, football, tried it, wasn't very good at it, baseball, a train wreck. Um, so I've never been known for my athletic prowess ability, but there is one sport, and honestly, this is not bragging. It's just well, it's, if it's true, it's not bragging, right? Uh, I can ski, and I can ski well. Uh, and I've, I've skied all over uh, the continent. Uh, I've been all the way up in Vancouver, up into some very, very steep slopes, and I love it. The steeper, the better. And um, my family, as part of my birthday present, took me up to Snowshoe. I haven't been to Snowshoe in 18 years, and uh, I love to ski when I can go. And as I was on that mountain, I, I don't know why I thought about this. Well, well yeah, I do. I'll, I'll, I'll fill that in in a minute. But 25 years earlier, I was 24 years old, and uh, I've been skiing for several years by that point, going out west when I could. And some buddies of mine got together. We, we were going to go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Now, now Jackson Hole at the time, I don't think it stands true now, but, but Jackson Hole, Wyoming had the steepest, longest run anywhere in America of any ski resort. So obviously, that's where I wanted to go. So me and some buddies got together. We were going to save our money. We were going to take a trip and go out there and spend seven days and ski. Well, when it came, came time to pay the bill to go, I was the only one that had any money. All my other buddies had blown all their money. So then I had a choice to make. Am I going to just go ahead and go, or am I going to just bail? I, I went ahead and went. So I went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming by myself, skied for seven days out there. And I had, my intention was to go up on Rendezvous Mountain. Now, I, now this is before internet, okay? I, I know that's hard to imagine, but there was a day. There was a day where you, you didn't have a device to Google search something and, and look it up. You had to use magazines. I mean, how crazy is that? Videos and whatever I could find. 
because I, I wanted to know as much as I could about this particular run that was pretty well well known within the skiing community. And, and you kind of got your props if you could go ski this particular slope. So I go out there, and I've, I've studied. I've done a bunch of leg exercises. I'm ready to go. And I, I did a few, few days I spent on the lower part of the mountain, but there's this big tram that goes to the top of Rendezvous Mountain. Rendezvous Mountain's 10,450 feet. And I could see the run in the distance, and I could see people coming down, and I said, by the end of this vacation week, I'm going up there. So about four days in, I get on this tram. This tram takes about eight minutes to get to the top of this mountain. And as I'm going up, I realize that there's no other way down off that mountain except to come down some advanced runs. So I'm committed. I'm fully in at this point. So I get up on top. I get off the tram. And I, I, I put my skis on. I, I go over to what literally is looks like the edge of the earth. And the name of the run is Corbett's Kalur. That's what it is. Yeah, Corbett's Kalur. It's, it's well known. And the thing about it is, is when you drop into this thing, you're dropping into a, a valley of rocks, basically. It's two rock ridges that go up. You're standing on top, 10,450 feet, and you got to drop off into a near vertical. And that vertical goes for, uh, I'm going to say, about four football fields. And if you fall, you pretty well slide to the bottom. I mean, that's pretty much the, how it's all going to work out. So... I get over to the edge, and what's amazing about this is, is I maybe thought about it for three minutes, but the thoughts that were running through my head were not was not whether I was going to do it or not. That's already been decided. If not by sheer logistics, it's been decided. There's no other way down, right? But I was committed at that point. I was going down that run. I thought about three minutes, got my goggles adjusted. I went off that thing, and I skied all the way down it. Didn't fall a single time, not a single time. And I was so arrogant when I got to the bottom of that run. <laughs> Just filled with arrogance. I want you to know, man, I, I pulled this thing off, and, and then I skied it other times while I was there. So now fast forward 25 years. I'm at Snowshoe, West Virginia, and uh, I'm, I'm standing over on a run called Shays Revenge. I'd skied Shays Revenge many times. It's a pretty steep steep pitch, but nothing compared to what's out west. And, and, I, and, and same thing, once you turn left and go down this run, you're committed. You're, you're either going to go down on your butt or you're going to go down on your skis, one or the other. So I get to where the steepest part is. It's about two football fields, maybe three. And something happened. It got weird. I got over to the edge of this thing, and I'm like, wow, I don't remember this being this steep. And I don't know if it's because I'm 49. Because it's not because I, let, I forgot how to ski. I know how to ski. But in that moment, I'm looking down and saying I'm by myself, which is probably a good thing. I'm by myself, and there's this like this, Okay, now, I don't know about this, right? I'm, I'm standing there, and it's where this particular run is. You're kind of up above the tree line, so it's, it's you really to come up to the edge. And I, I'm standing there thinking about 25 years previous when I was at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I don't know why I'm thinking about all this stuff. And, and there's that moment of kind of fear coming up. But then pride kicks in. It was like, there's no way I'm going to walk down this thing. There's no way I'm walking back up because you're right under the lift. What's that going to look like? I got skis on my shoulder. I'm not walking out of here. Again, pride. So turn my skis down the hill. I skied right down that hill, didn't fall, got to the bottom. And I thought, yeah, I hadn't lost, I hadn't lost a lot at 49. I'm still, I'm still able to ski pretty fast, still able to do this. But here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm getting there. After all the time of skiing, all the times going out west, wouldn't it be weird? Wouldn't it be odd? Wouldn't it be strange that if I spent my whole week just on the bunny slope and just stay there on the little gradual slope where the nice little carpet ride is and, and stay there for the whole week because I'm afraid of what lies on the other side? Isn't it amazing that you can have all the training, 
all the equipping. You can even have a professional in, in any given activity that not only walks with you, trains you, equips you, it even guarantees that they're going to be with you all the way through everything you're going to face, have all of those resources, and yet be frozen in fear. You know where I'm going next, right? Every born-again believer, every person that's put their faith in Jesus Christ, you have God living in you. Let me tell you a little bit about the Holy Spirit, just, just in case. You probably already know this, but it's worth hitting and covering. The Holy Spirit was there at the moment of creation. It says that the Spirit hovered over the deep. He, he was involved in creating the universe. He, he was involved in every single major event in the Old Testament, every great story. He, he, was, he was with David when, when he walked down in the valley of Elah to face Goliath. He, he was there with Daniel in the lion's den. He was there with, with the three Hebrew boys who, who refused to bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar said. He was there. He was with Moses crossing the Red Sea. He, he was in all of those major events, empowering people to do what God had called them to do. And then you fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus makes the promise, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to give you the comforter. He, he's going to live in you. He's going to illuminate you. He's going to help you to remember all things that I've taught you. And then we get to Acts 2, the pivotal moment of all history when the Holy Spirit not only falls, but indwells the 120 living in the upper room. That same Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing us all 66 of these books that you hold in your hand. He's the one that wrote this through the hands of Paul and Peter and John and the 40 authors of Scripture. That Holy Spirit, that, that Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead Trinity, lives in you. But not only that, for many of you, you've been in church for many years. It's untelling how many times, it's, un, it's unimaginable how many times you've heard the gospel presented. It's unimaginable how many prayers you've heard, prayed, and participated in. It's, it's unimaginable how many worship songs, hymns that you have sung down through the years. Listen, folks, there is no reason, there's no excuse that any Christian can give that we are removing ourselves from the mission that God has called us to. No excuse stands. Nothing you can say. Even if you were born again, if, if you came to faith in Christ this week, if this is your first time in church, you still have no excuses. The Holy Spirit living inside of you that wrote Scripture empowers you to do what God has called you to do. So we don't have the option of staying on the bunny slope. We don't have the option. How weird would it be to be a great swimmer, be trained to swim, but yet spend all of your time in the kiddie pool with six inches of water and a life preserver all. Does that seem odd to you? Paul said it this way to the church at Corinth. He said, he said that church at Corinth, he said, in chapter 3, he said, you know, I, I, I invested in you guys. I poured into this church. I planted this church, got this church started, and I put you in a high chair, figuratively speaking. He said, I put the church in a high chair, and he found, I fed you with a bottle and milk with the understanding that at some point you're going to move from the high chair to the table and you're going to move from milk to a steak. And Paul says, how shocked I am to find that you're still sitting in a high chair. You know why? It's because of fear. 
But yet God is calling you, God is calling you to the deep end of the pool. Matter of fact, He's calling you out where there's waves crashing. He, he's calling you to join Him in a work that He's doing, and He's given you all of the tools necessary to no longer be afraid and no longer be re- relegated to a kiddie pool or a bunny slope. He's saying, come and follow me. Take up your cross. You've got all that you need, and I'm at work out here, so you come join me. But yet fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what people are going to think. We'd rather just splash around in our kiddie pool or stay in our high chair or stay on the bunny slope. So God is calling us to join Him in the work He's doing. But I want to I just tell you, on the front end, there's a risk involved here. There's risk, and you're going to see it with the disciples. So let's take a look at verse 12, chapter 5. I want to back up there. I want you to see what's going on in this New Testament church. Luke Luke, on several occasions, stops with the narrative of what's going on. And, and, and for the fourth time, he's going to say, this is what's happening as a result of God's work and God's presence and the obedience of His people. Verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So if you could go back and see what's going on in this New Testament church, the first thing you're going to be struck by is the manifest power of God in this church. And in its leaders, and, in, and not only in the leaders, not only in the 120, but in the people on the street level who've come to faith in Christ, they're telling other people about the Jesus they found. There's a boldness. There's a freedom. There's, there's a, a, a risky faith here. And not only that, you would have seen the miracles being done by the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is the same place that we've talked about that Inside the temple mount, the temple general, there was the temple proper. And between the temple proper and the outside walls, there was a long, about 100-yard walk to where you got to Solomon's porch. And this is where the New Testament church was gathering and worshiping and preaching the gospel. And as people would come into the temple, as Jews would come into the temple to offer the sacrifices, they would hear the worship and the singing and the preaching of the New Testament church, and they would go check it out. And they would go over there. And they would hear the gospel, and thousands were coming to faith in Christ. So many people were coming to faith in Christ, there is no way that it was only the 120 that was sharing the gospel. There is no way that just the apostles were sharing the gospel. There is no way to explain this movement of God other than His power and the people's obedience to what God is doing. There's no way that it could have just been Peter, James, John, and the 12, and the 120. It says here that none of the rest dared to join them. There was a, there was a reverence and a kind of a, almost a fear, especially with what happened in the previous verses with Ananias and Sapphira. There's a, kind of like a, a respect and a, and a healthy appreciation and almost like a, a little bit of anxiety with, with this move of God, and that's the way any move of God should be approached by His people. Yes, a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of like, wow, what is this? Because when God moves, it just blows your mind. So that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This thing is is absolutely incredible what's going on. There were so many people that were needing to be healed that the people began to think, if we could just lay them in cots, and maybe as Peter walks by or maybe John walks by, 
that the shadow would fall upon them and, and that God would use just simply the shadow of these leaders to raise these people up off of their sick beds, to give them back their sight, to give them back strength in their legs that they may be able to walk. That's incredible. Look at this. It says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. It's amazing what is going on in the church. But then you get to verse 17. You see that word but right there? That's going to turn our attention to something that's not so good. Look at this. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. If you remember back in Acts 4, after they had healed the man laying at the gate called Beautiful, they were arrested and they were brought into kind of like a, a, a small gathering of the Sanhedrin. And they have this interaction where Peter looks at them and says, look, you guys can argue among yourselves all you want to, but, but as for me and, and us guys here, we're going to follow and obey the Lord rather than obeying men. And not only that, Peter preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin. He says, look, the guy you put to death, that guy, that guy is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is exalted at the, God's right hand. You put him to death. Incredible boldness. And here they are again, after they've been warned that time, they were not beaten, they didn't lay a hand on them, they just looked at them and said, you guys have got to stop preaching in the name of Christ. Well, here we are, time has went by, more people have come to faith in Christ, and what's happening at the temple? The focus is being turned towards the church, not what's going on inside the temple property. And guess who's upset? The high priest. Luke describes him as jealous. He's envious. And he's got to put a stop to it. They arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. This is not the first time they've been arrested. This will not be the last time they're arrested. But what happens at this moment is pretty incredible. They're put into public prison. The text, Luke tells us and gives us all these amazing details that they were locked in prison. I don't know if it was one prison or multiple prison rooms, but nonetheless, they're locked in. And then there are guards that are posted outside the door. And because there is such a move of God and because that there is a, a, a power and a preeminence and a focus on evangelism continuing, guess what happens? As they're in prison during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Look at that, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what happens here. I don't know how God pulled this off. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He can do anything He wants. In this moment, He sends an angel down to this prison. There are guards posted outside. These apostles are able to walk out. The doors shut behind them and lock and walk right by the guards, and the guards don't even know that they're gone. I don't know if, if God made them invisible. I don't know what happens. Obviously, it's miraculous. But these guards have no idea that the cells they're guarding are empty. God's power. Now, at this moment, the high priest comes and they gather the Sanhedrin together and they're going to put these apostles on trial. That was the whole point. And I, I would imagine that the high priest is already thinking the same way he was thinking about when they had to deal with Jesus. And the idea is, is that 
If they're not going to shut up, if they're not going to stop talking about Jesus, then we're going to have to take it up a notch. Maybe even we're going to have to put them to death as well. I'm sure they were thinking that if they cut the head of the snake off, Peter, James, John, the apostles, if they can put them in prison or put them to death, then the whole thing is going to fold up and end. So they gather the Sanhedrin, and they call for the prisoners to be brought out. There's There's a big problem here. There are no prisoners. And even the guards outside the door didn't even know the prisoners were gone. And everyone was amazed and and shocked by this. Verse 24, Now when the captain of the temple and chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. When they heard that there was no prisoners, that they were gone, they didn't know where they were at. Here's the amazing contrast. The Sanhedrin is gathering to put these guys on trial for preaching the gospel. And where are they at this particular moment? In the temple, preaching the gospel. What boldness. Some guy runs to him and says, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple teaching the people. Does it, does it sound, I don't know, shocking, surprising that, that after they're put in prison and after they're threatened and after they think they're going to face trial, that as soon as they get out of prison, they go right back to preaching the gospel. So you, you've got to see the emphasis here on sharing the good news. It seems to be the most important thing happening. It seems to be the thing that God keeps opening doors for them to make sure that the gospel is going forward to those who need to hear it, even setting them free miraculously from prison. So they find them. They bring them back. And when they brought them before the council, the high priest questioned them, verse 28, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, that's kind of already happened, is it not? Are you not directly responsible for putting the Son of God to death on a cross publicly? It's not Peter putting that blood upon you. That's already upon you. Peter's preaching the gospel. And listen to what Peter says. Peter, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Not one little change in their boldness, not one little backing off, not one little change from when they were arrested in Acts 4 till now. They are continually, consistently proclaiming the name of Jesus. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I can't imagine how furious the high priest would have been in this moment. Remember, in Acts 4, he looks at these men and he goes, who are these guys? They're uneducated fishermen. How in the world are they able to discern God's Word the way that they are? They're nobodies. And yet here they are again after being threatened the first time, and they are continuing to teach and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I can't imagine how furious he is. And verse 33 gives us some insight. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They want to take these guys out behind the building somewhere, kill them, bury their bodies, and put this thing to rest once and for all. If you remember, it's these same guys who tried to put this whole thing about Jesus to rest. They thought when they put him on a cross and killed him, that would be the end of it. Then then they start hearing rumblings about that he may, his body may be stolen, that he was going to resurrect. So then they post guards at the tomb to make sure nothing happened to the body. And yet in spite of those guards even being paid off, Jesus' body disappears. He resurrects from the dead. Everything these men try to do is sovereignly and completely thwarted by God. The power of God, the boldness of the church, 
Verse 34. This is interesting. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. This teacher who is who is revered by the Sanhedrin, it's kind of those old commercials that used to be on TV. It was when a specific person listens, uh, speaks, everybody listens. Well, this is that guy. He begins to speak, and what he's going to say here is both incredible, it's intelligent, but also he, he makes a serious error in judgment here. And I will show that to you. He says to the rest of the Sanhedrin, he says, before these days, a guy by the name of Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. This is actually during the same time when Jesus' birth was happening, and drew some away after him. Now, when he starts off speaking to the Sanhedrin, he says to them, now, guys, listen, we need to be careful here. We, we need to slow down. We need to consider what we're about to do. You guys are talking about killing these guys, but I want you to understand, we need to be careful in what we do next. And he gives two examples of two men who rose to power and prominence, had a bunch of people following them. And notice what happens. It says, he too perished, and all who followed him, both Theodos and Judas the Galilean, both of them, both of them, their, their movements ended, they ended up losing their life, and their people were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That word opposing God, that phrase means to actually physically fight against God. So here's what Gamaliel's doing. Gamaliel gives two examples of two men who claimed to be something only to find out that in time it all failed. During this time, there would be many a people, and even after the book of Acts, there would be many people who would rise to power and they would, they would claim to be Messiah. They would claim to be the Jewish Messiah only to fail time and time again. So Gamaliel says to them, on the one hand, if this is a work of Peter, James, John, the apostles, if it's just their work, if God's not involved in it, it's going to fail. But if God is involved, if God has empowered this movement, then we're going to be found not only opposing God, but fighting against God, and there's nothing we can do. But what's amazing about this is, and where Gamaliel gets it absolutely wrong, is don't you not find it interesting that the Sanhedrin didn't ask the apostles, hey, how did you get out of prison? Is God involved? Is God working? Is God moving this thing forward? It's painfully obvious that what's happening here is a work of God and not a work of Peter, James, John, the apostles, and the 120. How do we know that? Because they were just set free out of a prison that was locked and guarded. Gamaliel seems to, to forget that completely. Is God at work? I think we can confidently say, yes, Gamaliel. God is at work in the lives of these people. What we're beginning to see, we're far enough in the book of Acts now, we're beginning to see a pattern. And that pattern is this. God's power is at work. God's power is working in the streets of Jerusalem. The Spirit of God has fallen and empowered His people living inside of them. And as those people are obedient to what God is doing, boldness is the result. We, we're seeing over and over and over again here times where the church really should have just fallen apart, and this is one of those times. 
But yet, we find boldness. We, we find boldness on top of boldness. And then when we find that boldness that is the result of their obedience to God's work, you know what we find? We find the expansion of God's kingdom. We find the gospel going forth and lives being touched. We, we find the Great Commission being fulfilled as we read the text. Notice this. It says, they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Gamaliel didn't say anything about beating them. That's just something the Sanhedrin did out of their own jealousy and anger. And let me explain to you what happened in this moment. We don't know how many were arrested, obviously more than one. They would have required them to get down on their knees. They would have taken their, their clothing off down to the waist. The Sanhedrin, one or two or multiple, would have taken large, wide leather belts. And they would have given these men 39 lashes with that wide belt on the back and on the chest. Historians tell us that more than likely they would have hit across the back and then came across the chest. Probably would have missed him in the face a few times. Now, the Sanhedrin has a lot of grace and mercy because they were not allowed to give them 40. It's 39 saved one, and they saved one just out of mercy's sake, right? These men, as they're being beaten, you can see the welts and the bruises raising up on their body. And here they are because of their boldness in Christ, because of what God is doing, and God is calling them to the deep end, calling them out of the shallows and into the deep water. Come out here and ride the waves with me. And they follow God into the deep places. And what ends up being the result? Getting beaten with a leather belt 39 times. It's at this point you may be thinking, well, now, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. I thought following Jesus meant a BMW in my driveway and a bank account full of money and a life of ease. But let me explain to you what Jesus said about following him when he taught the disciples about what it meant to follow him. Jesus used the most powerful symbol he could have used. In Luke chapter 9, he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up a cross. He said that before he bore his own cross. A cross was something of shame and suffering, and you wouldn't have nothing to do with a cross. And Jesus looks at his men and says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up a cross daily. Every day you're going to take it up, and you're going to follow me. And all the shame and the pain and the reproach that comes along with that. Listen, folks, when you put your faith in Jesus, that's what you signed up for, whether you know it or not. Thankfully, we live in a country where we can still freely talk about Jesus. You can talk about him in lunch today, and you're probably not going to get faced with a leather belt, but there are brothers and sisters all over the world who are facing belts, guns, knives, swords, acid being thrown in their face, being set on fire alive. Our brothers and sisters all over the world are facing that, and you know what they're doing? They're getting bolder and bolder and bolder. I want you to see what happens. It's at this moment, after they've been beaten, I would have been taken, I'll just be honest with you, if I'd have been in that place, I hope, I hope that I could have responded like they did. But more than likely, what I would have done is I would have had Jeff a big old pity party. 
And Jeff would have been justifying why I need a vacation. I need to take a couple of weeks off and kind of gather my thinking. I need to have a couple of committee meetings and heal up. I need to retreat somewhere to some hole or some cave and hide out for a while while things calm down. That would have been Blackburn's approach. But listen to these men. It says, it says here, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. I don't like that. Can I just tell you, I don't like that. I don't like that. Couldn't they have thrown, couldn't Luke have thrown something there? Yeah, they were rejoicing, but they were really complaining. I, I could have connected with that a lot better. Maybe, maybe, maybe when they got beaten, somebody took a shot to the head and they're out of their minds. Or could it be that this is what it means to actually follow Jesus? Could it be that we, we've bought into some kind of easy believism where this is not the Christianity we've bought into? We've bought into a kiddie pool, bunny slope, take it easy, the easiest path possible to get my ticket into heaven and live for eternity as long as I'm comfortable now. Maybe, maybe this is what really following Jesus looks like, and really this is what it means to walk in boldness empowered by the Holy Spirit. Oh, but it gets worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Not only were they rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Yeah, I don't like that part either. You see, they saw the lashing that they were taking as identifying with the Savior that they committed their life to. And in that moment, they counted it as an act of worship and honor back to their king to be beaten in the way that Jesus was beaten. They, they counted it as an act of absolute worship and commitment to their king. That this came with the territory, that, that going to the deep places with God... Listen, Satan is alive and well, and he's working in the world. And when you go to the deep places with God... And God begins to use you and empower you to do amazing, amazing things that you can never possibly accomplish on your own. You better, you better understand there's going to be some pushback. What does that look like in our country? Well, somebody may say something about you. Somebody may talk about you. Somebody may make a fun of you. They may ridicule you. As we stand today, that's about the extent of the persecution of the American church. It might get a little worse. You might lose your job. And that's bad. Trust me, I understand that. But the extent of the persecution of the American church is that we don't even know persecution. And the reason we don't know persecution is because we're sitting in six inches of water when God has called us to come out into the waves and join in. We'd rather stay on the kiddie slope because it requires nothing of us. God says, come join me in the work that I'm doing. Lost person, let me... Let me let me speak to you just a moment. I, I, know, I know that one of the excuses that you often offer for not putting your faith in Jesus is because when you look in your family, maybe immediate or extended, you've got people in your family who've put their faith in Jesus. And, and when you look at their life, you see no difference in them whatsoever. They worry just as much as you do. They're afraid just as much as you are. 
They might talk about heaven and one day they're going to go to heaven, but when it really comes down to it and the pressure's on the family with whatever's going on, they're acting just like everybody else is. There's no difference whatsoever. So in your mind as a lost person, you look at that and you go, what's the point? I'd rather have my Sundays to myself than to go to church like they do because obviously following Jesus has made no difference in their life whatsoever. I can't tell you how many times that's come up in gospel conversations. Pastor, if that person over there is a believer, then everybody is. Jesus hasn't made any difference in their life. They're just as worried and stressed out and afraid as I am. So what's the point? Lost person, can I just say to you for just a moment, when you die and leave this world, you're not going to have the opportunity to bring up so-and-so. It's not going to matter in the least to the Godhead Trinity about the person you keep pointing to who's not living close with Jesus. There's only going to be one question that matters, and that's what you did with the gospel that you heard. And if you rejected Jesus Christ, you will be separated from God forever, for eternity, in a place called hell of terrible torment. That's, at the end of the day, the choice you've got to make, regardless of who is misrepresenting Christianity to you. Why do we do this? Why is it, with all the resources that we've got, with all that we've been given. Why is it we, we stick to the shallows? Why do we prefer just to get our ankle in the water rather than go out into the deep with God? I'm going to give you a few things, what I think it is. Number one, we like to be in control. We like to be in control. We, we don't want to be in a situation where we surrender control to someone else. But you know as well as I do, the very moment you walk out of the kiddie pool, the very moment you walk off of that bunny slope and you start walking to where God is calling you to go, at that very moment you have to relinquish control. As a matter of fact, when you confessed Christ, you made Him Lord of your life. You relinquished control on that day. We don't like giving up control. You see, if I'm sitting in six inches of water, it requires nothing of me. I can control it. I'm in control. So therefore, if I'm in control, then I'm the God of my life, and I get to be, I get to call the shots. I get to control the outcomes. And there's really no risk involved for me to stay right here. So we like to be in control. Second thing is, is we it feels good to feel safe. Oh, man, we live in a feelings-driven society now, do we not? It's all about how we feel. I mean, we can feel a certain way a certain day, and that becomes the truth by which all people must live by, how we feel. So if, if, if I'm in control, and I've got my own little kingdom here, and I'm, I've got the outcomes under my control, then, then the, the outcomes have got to make me feel good and got, got to make me feel safe and, and got to make me feel like I'm empowered. Awful lot of eyes in there, isn't there? We don't want to feel like we're being challenged. We don't want to feel like we've lost control. Third, we don't want to offend or bug or be different. We don't want to bug people. We don't want to be different. We don't want to, we don't want to stand out from the crowd. This, this goes all the way back to your high school days and your middle school days. For some of you who have been removed from that for a while, some of you are living in it now. 
it's a really, really tough thing to be different when everybody else is going in that direction. It requires some boldness and some faith and courage. The church, even in its thousands strong right now, is by far the minority. By far the minority. Both the Romans and the Jewish leadership are very much in control of Jerusalem. And if they wanted to, they could have put this thing down as far as physical force. But they can't stop this. God is going to make sure of that. We don't want to bug anybody, right? We don't want to offend or be different. And as long as we fit in, we're not getting stared at or talked about. We prefer to just go with the flow and we stick our finger up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing and we'll go that way. And and as you already know, the wind's blowing every different direction. It can change every day as far as what is true and what is false if you define it by the way the world defines it. You can't live your life like that. Here's what you got to understand. A lot of people prefer to go with flow even when the flow is against God's will. We will go with the flow of the culture even though the flow with the culture is against God's will and even becomes sin in your life. Simply to fit in with a group of people that you don't know, probably may never meet if it's a social media type thing, that you really shouldn't care what they think about anyway. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you fit in their paradigm and you go with their flow, they still talk about you. So if they're going to talk about you, give them something to talk about. Bring Jesus up. Talk about him. How he's changed your life. And fourth, We've grown comfortable with the no-risk faith. The kiddie pool's not so bad after all. Even though it's the weirdest-looking thing for an adult who knows better and can swim in the deep water to be sitting in the kiddie pool. We've grown comfortable with a no-risk faith. And as a matter of fact, we've taken faith and defined it as no risk. The whole point of me going through the book of Acts is to present to you a contrast so that then it may prompt our thinking to consider that faith is by definition something that requires risk. And let me, under, let me make sure I define that. When God calls you into the deep places, He's going to take care of you. And even if and this is where the church at this time is, where Paul is, when he, when he was living, we're going to see that, that Paul came to this place where he says, either, whether I die or whether I live, either way I win, I'm, I don't know that I'm there yet. Pretty confident I'm not. But that kind of place. You see, trusting God, trusting God is risky from your perspective by definition. Here's why. God wants to pry some things out of your hands. That that clinging to comfort and that clinging to, to, to whatever you're holding on to, He's wanting to take you out into the deep, but you can't carry the kiddie pool out into the deep with you. He's wanting you to abandon your kingdom and join His. He's wanting you to give up this work that you're trying to do and trying to control everything. He's wanting you to let go of that thing and follow Him out into the deep places. You know what you'll find out there? Incredible blessing, incredible power, incredible moves of God, prayers you've been praying for years. God moves and answers because you're walking in obedience with Him. And walking in obedience with Him will take you to places that will make you uncomfortable by definition and by design. So it's time to catch some big waves. It's time to go down some steep places with God. I want you to, I want you to see this pattern one more time. The power of God is let loose in Jerusalem. It's going to go global. That's why we're sitting here today. 
It's built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by works, not, not by, by you going to church and giving money and being a good person because you can never be good enough. That's the problem. That's why Jesus had to come. The power of God at work in Jerusalem and in the globe, on the planet, He's at work and He's inviting His people who call Him by His name to join Him in that work. But it requires you to abandon your little kingdom that you've worked so hard to build. And when you experience and you join God in the power of what He's doing, guess what it does? It gives you boldness. It gives you confidence. It gives you courage. And then as you gain boldness and courage and confidence and obedience, you know what happens? The kingdom is expanded. You quit thinking so much about whatever people think about you. You become consumed with the urgency of the gospel. Consumed with knowing one day you've got to stand before this king who laid down his life to make it possible for you to come to faith in others. And he's going to hold you accountable one day. You begin, you begin to see the world through his eyes. You begin to see the lostness around you. And you begin to abandon the idea of what other people think. And you begin to engage your culture with the good news with abandon. But there's something else I want you to see. Not only is God at work, and He joined, He asks us to join Him in that work, and out of that work comes a boldness and an expansion of the kingdom, but there's a humility here. <laughs> the, the, the apostles, after being beaten, they're rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for His name. Listen, when you join God in the deep work, when you join God out there in that work, you know it's not a work of man. Gamaliel said, if it's a work of man, it's going to fail. If it's a work of man, it's going to fold up. Listen, there's a lot of churches across our country that have put all their trust in a work of man, and it's going to fail. And this is going to sound bad, but you understand, the sooner they fail, the better. If it's a false gospel and a false church teaching, a false doctrine, sooner they fail, the better. Because they're watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're making it harder for the rest of us to reach the people who need to hear the true gospel. So I'm okay with the work of man failing. The humility here is is that these men and women in the New Testament church at this point, they know that what's happening here is bigger than them. You see, that's what happens when you go out there and you join God in those those big waves. And there's times you get knocked down. There's times you feel like you're in over your head. I feel like that just about, well, I've been feeling like I'm in over my head here for the last seven years. Look, I've been treading in the deep end, and if it hadn't been for the grace of God pulling me out a few times around here, I'd have lost my mind, I'm just telling you. Two hurricanes, a building that we can't even use, setting up and tearing down this building every week, and all the help that you, some of you about to lose your mind with this as well. Thank God you're seeing some work over there. Could, I tell you what, could they have been any bolder in the start that they did on the work on that building over there? You drove by one day, we had a front porch. You drive by the next day, the steeple's gone, the front porch is gone, and there's a dumpster full of garbage out there. Praise God. Absolutely. I'm good with that. Okay, I'm chasing a rabbit. I've got to come back over here. An increase in humility because they know that what God's up to, it's His work. It's His work. Verse 42. And every day, look at that, every day, every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is 
Jesus. Man, I would have took a couple of days off or something after getting beat the way they got beaten. But the urgency of the gospel is too strong. There's too many lost people that need to hear. God's doing the work. They're joining God in that work, and they won't even take a day off to heal up. By the way, this, this pattern that we see, not only is it going to be repeated, it's going to expand. Once this thing gets beyond the walls of Jerusalem, it's going to, it's, you're going to be blown away by how God takes the church outside Jerusalem. You've got to come back for that. It's amazing what God does to get the church outside those walls. They know it's a work of God and they're humbled by it. I got a paragraph I want to read. It was out of a, a sermon that I was reading that was preached many years ago. And I'm not even, I don't even know who the author is or I'd, I'd give him credit, but I thought it was a good paragraph to read for you at this point. Quote, There are a lot of folks who've planned their lives out very carefully. A nice little job, nice little marriage, Two nice little kids, a nice little boy and a nice little girl. A nice little retirement plan. A nice little house with a nice little garage with a nice little car in each half of it. A nice little place to go in the summer or, if you prefer, a nice little place to go in the winter. You know you know what the end of that story is? A nice little hill with a nice little mound upon it and a nice little stone at the top of that mound with your nice little name on it and a few nice little dates underneath. You know what will have happened? You will have pampered yourself into mediocrity when you could have forgotten yourself into immortality. And you know what that sounds like? Joining God out in the deep place. You know what that nice little house and nice little marriage and nice little kids, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like the pseudo-American dream that we've been sold ever since we were a kid, that value is found in having all of that stuff. And then you get to the end of your life, and then your life ends, and you find out that you've invested your life in something that doesn't matter. You've invested your life in safety, but there's been no impact for the kingdom and no glory brought to God. How awful that would be when God says, come join me in the deep places. So in the coming weeks, uh, you're going to be receiving a challenge. For those of you who signed up for Bless Every Home, you might have thought I forgot about that. In the 1,800 homes that we've been praying for, well, it's time to take the next step. For those of you who've been looking across the street at your neighbor, it's time to take the next step. It's time to move beyond our closets of prayer and move out into the streets where the gospel needs to be proclaimed. But you know what? It's going to require us to leave some comforts behind. But we're going to join God in that deep place. As a church collectively, as individuals, we're going with God to the deep place. Even if it means losing some folks along the way. That's how committed I am to this. It's how committed I am to do what God's called us to do as a church, to be the church in this community, to be light in this community. I will not relinquish that call. I won't. We can't. we, we got to be more than just a Sunday morning. we got to be more than just a Sunday morning gathering where we hear some songs and a decent sermon. we got to be more than just some small groups that meet. we got to be more than just a children's ministry. Thank God for all of that. But we got to be more than that, folks. And the more means walking across the street to the person who's never heard about Jesus, forgetting about how we feel and forgetting about what they think because they want to have that conversation with you just as much as God's calling you to have it.
got to be more than our comfortable building that we're going to have, that we have now. We've we got to be more than a basketball ministry or a soccer ministry. It's going to be more. Because God has called us to more. And we can't just grow comfortable here in this block building talking about how good God is and being silent about Him in the community. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. We're going to be held accountable for that. And I, as your shepherd, I have to tell you these things. you got to understand I love you dearly. I love every one of you. But out of love, we've got to move to the deep place. That's what the 40 days of prayer have been about. That's what the fasting's been about. It's to take us to a place we've not been. The yes, it's going to scare you to death. But we have no other choice but to walk with Him to those deep places because God's about to do something maybe has never been done in the history of this church and that's people hearing about Jesus on a wide scale it's got to be more than us, it's got to be more than the staff it's got to be more than that Father it's in the honesty and the bluntness of your word that makes the change in us Father I can't lead these people any place deeper than I am myself I admit that fully so, Father, you're not just taking us corporately. You're taking me to a deep place, a place I haven't been before. But I'm not going to respond with fear. I'm not going to retreat back to my kiddie pool. I'm going to walk with you. And whatever that means, whatever that looks like, I'm going to go there with you. Because I want to see your power made manifest. More than the air I breathe and the food that I eat, I, I want to see your power fall. see lives changed. I want to see addictions broken. I want to see people experience the forgiveness that I've found and that this congregation has found. Father, as a congregation, we want to walk by faith, not by what we see. This world, this community desperately needs to know the hope we found. It can't stay in this building. It can't stay here. It has to go out. You've called your people to the deep place this week. May we go there faithfully, obediently, and experience your power in that place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.